Hello, I'm Billy Jacobson, a partner at Allen & Overy, focusing on white-collar criminal work, including FCPA defense, investigations, and compliance. This is part of a series of web chats recording during this period of self-isolation with prominent folks in the anti-corruption world. And when we began this series in the spring, we were certainly hoping it would not continue into the deep fall, as it appears to be, so unfortunately. But here we are, making the best of it. Today, we'll focus on the landmark corruption case brought against Siemens in December 2018. I'm joined for this discussion by Bruce Yannette, partner with Debevoise in New York. Bruce and I met when I was at DOJ running the Siemens investigation, and Bruce was in charge of the internal investigation for Siemens. Welcome, Bruce. How are you faring during this quarantine period? Hi, Billy. Thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to reconnect with you. Hanging in there, thank God. I've been healthy. Everyone in my family has been healthy and going a little stir crazy from working from home for the last seven months, but otherwise I'm fine. Thanks. Great. Knock wood as you say that. I'm knocking wood as we speak. Bruce, as you know, the Siemens case was the first anti-corruption case brought simultaneously by the U.S. and another jurisdiction. In this case, it was the Munich prosecutor in Germany. And in recent years, there have been many cases brought in parallel with countries such as Germany, Switzerland, Brazil, and the UK, but Siemens was indeed the first. And given that, there were many firsts during the course of the case. For one, it was the first case in which the Munich prosecutor trusted a US law firm, yours, to provide facts and evidence which were then relied on for the prosecution. By 2006, 2007, this had become common in DOJ cases with law firms presenting to DOJ on the factual findings of their internal investigations, DOJ accepting them, and then those facts becoming the basis for enforcement actions. But Siemens was a first for the Munich prosecutor. Please say a little bit about how that came about from your perspective and how you earned the Munich prosecutor's trust and how the communications flowed from there. Yeah, that was really eye-opening for me because it was the first major case that I was involved in where a foreign prosecutor was so actively involved. And the Siemens case actually started when the Munich prosecutor and authorities executed a dawn raid or a search warrant, if you will, on the Siemens headquarters and on the homes of a bunch of executives in one of their divisions. And then DOJ and the SEC very quickly, of course, got involved. There was no experience in Germany of prosecutors having familiarity with internal investigations being conducted by outside law firms. The culture, the criminal prosecution and defense culture, if you will, was one where the defense counsel typically would wait for the prosecutor to finish their investigation and then build a defense case after the prosecutor concluded the investigation. The notion of while the prosecution was investigating an outside law firm in parallel, if you will, conducting its own investigation was a completely foreign animal. There was tremendous distrust at the outset. The prosecutors were concerned that we were going to destroy evidence or hide evidence. They were concerned that we were going to, in effect, coach witnesses to not tell the truth. They simply could not believe that we actually would be honest brokers and if we reported facts to them, that they would be accurate and truthful. At the outset, we literally uh, were concerned that they might execute a dawn raid on our work offices in Munich to seize evidence that we were gathering. And so we had to be quite careful about what we kept in the office and what we kept in New York. It took many, many months of conversations and meetings uh, with the Munich prosecutor with us at first 
pledging and honoring the pledge to coordinate with them in terms of who we were interviewing and what we were doing. So we would share with them in advance a list of the people we wanted to interview and make sure it was okay with them before we would interview them and therefore not trip over people that they were trying to interview at the same time. And then it went from there to beginning to share uh, the results and fruits of our work. And they clearly, for the first several months, were testing us. They would sometimes ask us a question where it was pretty clear to me they knew the answer, but they wanted to hear the answer from us to see if we were telling the truth. And then it sort of built from there over the course of the two years, we gained their full trust and confidence. I think you certainly did. And we at DOJ spent some time talking with them about how we had been accepting the facts that you'd presenting. Obviously, you know, you pressure test everything, but we spent some time talking to them about the system that by that point had become relatively common in FCPA cases in the United States. And so hopefully that helped condition the ground for you. In prepping for this call, you let me know that there was perhaps some mistrust going the other way. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, sort of ironic, but not only did they not trust us as private counsel for Siemens, but they also didn't trust DOJ and the SEC. They were convinced that DOJ and the SEC would try to steal the case in effect. They were worried the U.S. authorities would kill the company. And just to put this in context, Siemens was, at the time, the principal competitor to GE, an enormous industrial conglomerate with about 400,000 employees in 190 countries and turnover of 100 billion euros a year. I mean, just an enormous, enormous company. The German press was filled with articles about how this might be the end of the company. The prosecutors had no familiarity with how DOJ and the SEC worked who the people were. And I remember actually actively encouraging them that they could trust you. They could trust your colleagues and the SEC. And remember for the first time that you all met, being up in sort of a third floor attic office at the Munich prosecutor's office with a whiteboard, drawing organizational charts for DOJ and the SEC and showing sort of where the FCPA unit fit within DOJ and who you guys were and doing the same thing for the SEC and was delighted because it made my life easier when the relationship developed a trust between the two of you. Yeah, really funny and something I didn't know until our conversation a couple of weeks ago, which is great. And echoes of, you know, things that are tensions that are still going on to this day. I mean, there are stories in the press all the time lately about the SFO and DOJ and the Unioil matter wrestling over that matter. We know that one major international law firm's offices were raided in connection with the Volkswagen investigation a few years ago, which uh, Depovoy's avoided, thankfully. But definitely themes that continue in cases to this day, which is super interesting given that it was 12 years ago that we're talking about. Yeah, no question. One of the most remarkable things about the Siemens case, in a matter full of remarkable things, was the speed with which the investigation and settlement proceeded. Tell us a bit about the company's strategy in this regard and how it was accomplished so quickly. Yeah, so I would say that's probably one of the things I'm proudest of, because as you well know, uh, FCPA cases for a whole host of reasons very often take four or five, even six years from start to resolution. And this case resolved literally almost to the day in two years, even though it was 
probably the largest corruption scandal uh, that U.S. authorities have dealt with. And that really came from the client, and in particular, the chairman of the audit committee, who in the midst of this became chairman of the board of the company. He had really the, the foresight to understand this scandal for them was an enormous drag on the company in terms of its employees and employee morale, in terms of its relationships with its customers and suppliers, in terms of its ability to get uh, government permits for projects around the world, and that the sooner the company could put this behind it, the better off it would be. And so his marching orders to us, repeated to me almost weekly, were do whatever it takes to get to the bottom of this, and to resolve it as quickly as humanly possible. And he literally would repeat that to me virtually every time I saw him, which was very regularly because I was effectively living in Munich for the two years. He put enormous pressure on us and it was not to cut corners. The company was in the midst of sort of a cultural transformation before this all blew up from sort of the old way of doing business, which included corruption to a more modern and cleaner way of doing business but it hadn't succeeded in, in that transformation completely. And his motto to me, his message to me was not only get it done quickly, but find everything and root it out because we only want to go through this once. And so we then assembled a massive team of both Debevoise lawyers and Deloitte forensic consultants fanned out across the world. We had boots on the ground, I think in 35 different countries. We uh, worked closely with DOJ and the Munich prosecutor to come up with a methodology that I thought was actually creative on the part of the, of the government as well. And that was, we agreed after realizing the true scope of the problems, we would do a deep dive or a deep drill down on about 10 projects in each of the major operating divisions, and then report the results of those deep dives and share them with the government, we would agree in advance that would be emblematic of what was going on in the country and form the basis for a resolution. I think had this matter proceeded by traditional ways on both the defense side and on the government side, you and I would still be doing this case. <laughs> exactly, right. And as you say, the, the SEC and the DOJ agreed with the strategy and agreed that it would take years and years and years, perhaps until now, uh, to uncover everything. But that wasn't really necessary in order to bring an enforcement action, which penalized the company enough in which the company agreed to reform. Indeed, it be, had begun its reformation well before the settlement was reached. Everyone knew that a monitor was inevitable. And so that gave DOJ and the SEC and the Munich prosecutor, I think, comfort that things would indeed reform or continue with the reformation. But yeah, it was, it was definitely innovative. It was repeated to some extent, I think, in the Odebrecht case recently, uh, although the size and scale of Siemens uh, dwarfed even Odebrecht. I think that's right, Billy. Bruce, one of the ways that you were able to do the work so quickly was through another innovation, which was the amnesty program for employees, which was repeated by other companies several years later, including SNC-Lavalin. Talk to us a little bit about how the idea for the amnesty program came up and then how it was achieved. We were very frustrated. Uh, about six or seven months into the investigation, it was clear to us that by and large, too many of the employees were actually not telling us the truth. I think largely out of fear of losing their jobs in some cultures, including former East Germany, the idea of snitching or reporting on your superiors or others 
was anathema. And so we, we had to come up with a way of breaking that down because we realized that unless we got real cooperation from the employees, we were not going to be able to get to the bottom of things. And certainly not on the kind of timetable that we did. I came up with the idea of an amnesty program that I first obviously got approval from the client, which was to say that the company would tell its employees that for folks below a certain level of seniority in the organization, if they told the truth in their Debo Boys interview and complete truth in their Debo Boys interview, the company would not terminate them and would not sue them for damages, which is a tool available under German law. But that only went so far, obviously because there were the German prosecutors and the American prosecutors out there. So then I met with you and Mark and, and your colleagues, Billy, and with the Munich prosecutor. And I basically said to each of you, look, I know that I in no way can bind your prosecutorial decisions or do anything to influence them. Will you be comfortable though, if I tell the employees that this in no way binds the authorities, but if they're cooperative with Debo Boys, we would bring that fact to your attention if you interview them and would you weigh that in your consideration. And DOJ, the SEC, and the Munich prosecutor, thankfully, all said yes. That then broke the logjam. And the amnesty program was phenomenally successful. We then re-interviewed a bunch of people who we had interviewed and knew who had not told us the truth and people where we had emails that were clearly discussing bribes and they would concoct a story about how it wasn't bribes. When we re-interviewed them post amnesty, it was like, oh yeah, those are definitely bribes and <laughs> this is how it worked. And oh, let me tell you about this other project you didn't even ask me about. And, <laughs> and so that just opened the floodgates and enabled us to get done. Yeah, that's great. Was there a, a limit to the time frame of the amnesty program? In other words, did people have to, you know, get in the door within six months, or 12 months or something? So it was within the scope of our investigation, which we knew was moving at a quick pace. The other thing uh, we did was we realized that we had probably set the level a little too low after a few months expand again with your consent but not on a blanket basis, but on a one-off basis. Uh, and so if there was a particular individual who was not at, in the senior management, but who we thought actually held the keys to the kingdom, we could deploy it uh, on a one-off basis. And that also, in, in some cases, really opened the floodgates. Because at first, the program was not open to more senior executives. Correct. I mentioned the monitor a few moments ago. While the appointment of a monitor was sort of inevitable, it did produce another innovation in the form of a non-U.S. citizen serving as a monitor, which was, of course, innovative for the DOJ and the SEC. The appointed monitor was a German citizen named Theo Weigel. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. A former German finance minister. He was supported by Joe Warren and a team at Gibson Dunn, so supported by U.S. counsel. But the monitor himself was a German, and we understood that that was quite important to Siemens, not only to get them to accept the resolution, but perhaps more importantly, for the monitorship to be successful. And I wonder if you could give us a peek into that idea. This idea did not come from counsel. This really came from the company, a combination of Gerhard Kroma, who was then the chairman of the board, 
And Peter Loescher, who was the new CEO who had come in midstream uh, to replace the existing CEO, they pressed hard for this because they understood the German management of the company, which was not just located in Germany, but scattered throughout the company worldwide and largely in control of many of the key functions at the time. The, the only way to earn the trust of those folks and to not have this whole exercise of the monitor resented as American imperialism was to have a German lead and be the monitor. Of course, there were no German citizens who had any experience with this, and hence the idea of supporting the German citizen with a U.S. law firm. He had been the finance minister in Germany, was very widely respected in German business and political circles as an honest and good person. I think, certainly in hindsight, and I, and I don't take any credit for this, as I said, it really was the company. I think it was a brilliant decision. And I was delighted when DOJ agreed to it because I think he was quite a successful monitor. Yeah. And it made a world of sense once we gave it some thought. And DOJ and the SEC have repeated it many times since then in European cases and Brazilian cases. And I think each time it's been considered a success. So yet another innovation by uh, you and the team. Bruce, before I let you go, then this has been such an interesting conversation. I feel like we could do you know, several hours just on this matter. A couple of questions about this period of self-isolation that we ask all of the guests that we have on here. What is the thing you miss most from the outside world right now? I miss sort of casual, unplanned interactions with my colleagues in the hallway, in the lunchroom, in the conference room. I miss the opportunity. Many of my clients are located outside the United States and uh, having an opportunity to have a meal with them and see them and catch up with them because everything now is a planned interaction and obviously less personal. So that's the hardest part of all this, I think. Yeah. And as great as the video conferences are, and they've really been a salvation in some ways, they're also somewhat exhausting. Nothing is the same as being in person. I will say though, I can't imagine how we would have all survived this in a pre-video conference era. It would have been so much more difficult. Yeah, for sure. It, it has really enabled business to proceed, certainly our business. So to end on a positive note, can you think of something positive that has come out of this period? Yeah, look, uh, I'm someone who has spent a, an enormous part of my career on airplanes uh, hmm. and having dinner every night with Jessica has been spectacularly great. And uh, I'm going to miss that when the world returns to normal. That's great. We have to appreciate those things. I, I feel the same way. I, I don't think I had spent seven months without a flight in 15 or 20 years. And your muscle memory, like I actually can picture myself sitting on an airline seat, having a drink served to me and sort of yearning for that. But on the other hand, seeing your family every night is really, really nice and special. And maybe we appreciate it even more because we did travel so much. I, I think that's right. And as, while I, I share some of that yearning for the business travel, I have no plans to take one of those flights to nowhere just to eat the airline food. <laughs> Exactly. I don't get that at all. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your time. It's been really great catching up on this. Uh, likewise. Really, really great to talk to you. I'm glad you're well and stay well. Thank you. You too. Yeah.